Good afternoon, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson with another edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. You know, here on Local Matters, typically we talk about things of local interest. We've talked about the district attorney's race, the school board races. Um, but today we're going to talk about what's happening at the national level. Like everybody else, I am fascinated with what has unfolded uh, in terms of our presidential race, as well as in terms of our Georgia Senate races. Uh, and today I have a special guest who is uniquely equipped to talk about things at both the local, state, and federal levels. He is former Mayor Bob Young, uh, he considers himself a sometimes actor. He's always an author. He's a historian. He's a former radio and TV personality. And he's here with us today on Local Matters. How are you doing today, Mayor Young? Hi, Janice. I'm doing very well. And I, I thank you for the uh, invitation to spend some time with you and your listeners today. Thanks so much for being with me. Uh, as we talk about the presidential election, it has, a few things have occurred to me. At the tail end of last week's show, I start talking about Georgia and how it was shifting blue. Um, now we realize uh, that there have been changes, not just in Georgia, but throughout the nation, it appears, that have led to uh, what many are considering to be a very proud moment, what others are a little apprehensive about, quite frankly. Uh, so I wanted to invite Mayor Young on because because uh, of his experience, also because he's historically been a member of the GOP, the Grand Ole Party. Um, I think some of you have already figured out on this show, I am not bound to one perspective. I like to bring in people with different perspectives, so that's why I'm so happy to have him here. Um, and as I thought about the election, I went all the way back to 1984. Some people may remember uh, when Reverend Jesse Jackson made his first run for president. Uh, he talked about something called a rainbow coalition. Uh, I think that rainbow coalition was effective in uh, helping President Obama get elected in 2008 and then reelected in 2012. I think it has been similarly effective in getting Joe Biden elected. You think about it, gosh, this is just an old white guy. You know, how, what the rainbow coalition have to do with that? But you think about some of the people who put that in place. Um, uh, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. Uh, he, Jim, uh, Mayor, uh, excuse me, uh, President-elect uh, Biden's campaign at that point for the Democratic nomination seemed to be weak. It was on his last legs. He hadn't raised a lot of money. Uh, but uh, Jim Clyburn made the endorsement that changed his fate. Uh, people have talked about uh, Stacey Abrams because she was able to coalesce so many people in Georgia to get registered to vote, people who historically not been a part of the process. Uh, we've talked about President Obama, who I understand asked all the other Democratic challengers to sort of get out of the way so that uh, Joe could do that because he thought Joe had the best chance of, of winning as a Democrat. So uh, we've got lots of people over the past few years, say since 2018 to 2020, who've kind of pulled together uh, this notion of a rainbow coalition. But the first person that gave that notion to us, I think, was Jesse Jackson back in 1984. You remember um, his, his slogan was, keep hope alive. Keep hope, keep hope alive. alive. Remember the that? Slogan was the slogan. And as you think back, uh, Bob, tell us what you were doing in 1984 and what you were thinking back then. Well, 1984, I was uh, in radio. I was a news reporter for WBBQ. 
And at that time, I was in the middle of a transition to television to go over to uh, WJBF as their assignment editor. Um, you know, elections back then were just so different than they are now. Uh, the way candidates approached uh, voters and the outreach they used was so different than what we do now. Everything was so personal back then. Uh, people, you know, expected to see a candidate come around and uh, shake their hand and kiss their baby, uh, as the stereotype goes. But, uh, and the, 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 the advertising too was not as vicious uh, as you see now. Uh, we've come, if, if you could go just the opposite of something in excess of 180 degrees, we're, we're way beyond that compared to uh, the 1980s. And I think when you look back though, uh, Janice, uh, since the 80s, we've had quite an interesting experience with candidates uh, of, of uh, we've had women candidates before, we've had people of color as candidates before, we've had people of different religions because certainly when President Kennedy was running, his Catholicism was a was a big issue. Um, it's it's uh, it's really changed a lot. Uh, it's opened up the the time. The passing of time has opened a lot of opportunities to people who otherwise might not be engaged in the political system as opposed to uh, the way it was back in the 80s, 70s, 60s, yeah. Okay, all right. And as we move forward, having said that, talking about the changes that have taken place, uh, tell me what you think about what we have to come, knowing where we've been with you mm -hmm. as a historian. Um, wh what do we think is coming? And when I ask that question, I think about, um, um, President-elect Biden's uh, first comments, I think it was Saturday night, and he talked about unity and trying to bring everybody back together and being president for the entire country mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. Do you think that's really going to happen? Well, I think we, we have to move beyond the rhetoric. Uh, it was nice of President-elect Biden. It, well, he's not president-elect yet till the Electoral College meets, but, uh, but he is the candidate with the most electoral votes right now. But uh, for him to call uh, supporters of, uh, of Donald Trump chumps uh, is not helpful at all. A chump is defined as a foolish or easily deceived person. Uh, we've got to move beyond that. We've got to move beyond Michelle Obama just the other night saying that people who supported Trump supported lies, hate, chaos, and division. And these kinds of painting people with broad brushes and stereotyping them like this is not helpful at all when you're trying to put out a message that we want an inclusive government. We want everybody involved in it. And uh, based on, on what President uh, Trump has been through in the last four years with impeachment and the Russia issues and the special prosecutor and whatnot, um, you have to wonder if, uh, if President Biden really has his work cut out for him and will sincerely uh, be able to be a unifying force in the country. We've never been divided as much as we have right now. And uh, it's never been as personal as it's been right now. Uh, people in families, I was reading an article this morning, people in families are not talking politics to each other because they're on the opposite sides. And they know it's gonna be disruptive to having a relationship uh, with someone. And you know, a lot of this is driven by social media too, uh, which, which feeds on rumor and innuendo and, uh, and unfortunately, hate in, in many cases. Uh, 
uh, you, you've been in government, uh, I've been in government, and I think from that perspective, we have to learn not to take things personally. Uh, that politics is business, it's just like governing is business or running a store is business. Uh, don't, we don't take it personally. Uh, how do we divide, how do, how do we cross that chasm uh, between those folks who felt in some way uh, a victim of the Trump administration and those people who felt that the issues uh, he was dealing with and the manner he was dealing with them was the proper role of government in our daily lives. Uh, just because we support Trump doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that we support his approach uh, to issues, the way he talks of, about people and, and places and things. Um, you know, that some of, a lot of that was over the top. And I would, he didn't ask my advice, but I would have counseled him, close your Twitter feed. Uh, and, you know, just, just lay off some of that. But, you know, that's, I don't think that's going to be in the past either. I, I think moving forward, Trump's still going to tweet. We're going to hear from him. And we're going to hear from his 70 million voters who uh, in some way feel now feel in some way that this election is being stolen uh, from them. That remains to be seen. And certainly it's, there's not an issue with going to court to determine the outcome of an election. If there is some, some questions about uh, laws being broken and there's evidence that shows that, I think the big word is evidence. Let's see, see the evidence. I remember my own experience. I was an elector for President George W. Bush back in 2000. And you'll remember uh, when the election was over, we had uh, some issues with the Florida count. And before Florida came in, Bush was right on the cusp. And if he won Florida, he'd be at 271 and he'd be president. Uh, if Florida went to Al Gore, he'd have been the president. And the Supreme Court stepped in and made a decision and stopped the count. And, and, uh, and Bush was, was elected uh, president by the Electoral College. And in our case, in Georgia, we met, uh, the, the electors met in the state Senate chambers in Atlanta. And we all signed the forms, casting our votes and when all those were tabulated in Washington by the House of Representatives, and we had a, had a president. But even Bush had challenges moving forward. For him, 2001, 9-11 was a big unifying force, but it didn't take long for the country to go back to their factions and about their business and focus on their conflicts rather than their commonality. That's a long answer, I'm sorry. It is a long answer, and that's fine. We're here to talk. So you said a lot that I could follow up on. Um, let's talk about the tweeter in chief. Um, and you, you said that you would probably advise him if you were an advisor, you'd advise him not to do that. Um, some of the things, I think this is where there's a big separation between those who supported uh, President Trump and those who didn't comes in. Some of the stuff, as you clearly indicated, was over the top or has been and probably will continue to be yeah. uh, over the top. Um, and that is such a departure from the type of collegial Washington that I think once existed. Um, and one of the reasons that I can be hopeful for a Joe Biden presidency is that it appears that 
he wants to return to what it was. And I'll be honest, I think earlier on in the conversation I've referenced, there was an old white guy and I probably heard him reference himself as an old white guy. No, I reference um, myself as an old white guy. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's no, <laughs> no wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, no offense intended, just a statement of yeah, fact. Yeah. And I was worried. I think that was one of the reasons that he did not do well in the early stages of the Democratic primaries for uh, president. I think people... Uh, saw him as somebody who was a relic of the past. Um, and you looked at the age range. One day I was watching them in the debates on stage and I thought, mm-hmm. well, gosh, uh, Buttigieg, if I pronounce that correctly, is less than 40. I think he's only 38. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Klobuchar was, you know, 60, 59, 60, somewhere in there. And then, you know, Biden and Bloomberg were there in their late 70s. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, there's nobody here in what's the sweet spot. A Klobuchar was the closest one to what I thought was a sweet spot mm-hmm. in terms of the right age, if there is one, to run for president. Yeah. Uh, but now that I reflect on it, maybe Biden being an old guy is not a bad thing because he does remember the days when the the Senate, U.S. Senate, U.S. Congress, there was a collegiality, there was a cordiality, um, there were just things that they thought were beneath them in terms of how they uh, uh, acquitted mm-hmm. themselves in public. Yeah. So what I am hopeful for is that he can kind of get stuff back to what it was in 1975. I think when he first ran for office, 72 maybe it was the year he was elected. I have to check that. But maybe I am hopeful that we return to some sense of decorum that we missed from the tweeter in chief. Um, yeah, you're you're abs- you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the the Senate is a good old boys club. Everybody gets along socially. They have their policy differences, and those are aired out on the floor of the Senate. But uh, it served our our country very well to have people speaking across the aisle to each other and trying to work together and find common ground. I, I think, though, what has really damaged uh, the Senate uh, right relations uh, in the Senate between senators. Uh, was the was the Brett Kavanaugh hearing? Uh, how brutal that was, and how unfair many people um, uh, considered that, and some of the over-the-top questioning that uh, uh, Kamala Harris uh, laid out. So, I, you know, that that's something that the institution itself is going to have to work through. And then with the uh, with the Democrats threatening to do away with the filibuster. Uh, to take uh, some territories of the U.S. and make states out of them so they'll get two more Democratic senators for each one. Uh, you know, th- those kinds of things are just not helpful. Uh, if, if you're going to have a discussion uh, of an important issue, you need to have it in, in the context of, you know, what is best for the country, not, not what is best for any particular party or any particular uh, individual. And that's the environment that uh, Joe Biden grew up in, in the United States Senate. Um, will we return to it? I don't know. Uh, right now, the Senate is as fractured as the House of Representatives. Uh, it, it'll be difficult. It'll be a, a, a real, real tough task uh, for him, him to do this. Um, and especially if he's being pushed by the progressives on the left for the uh, Green New Deal and uh, universal health care and these very broad and expensive issues that uh, uh, fiscal conservatives are, are opposed to. 
Um, do you think that if a good faith effort, an olive branch, uh, if you will, is extended to uh, members of uh, the conservative faction that um, that you will see some progress? Do you think they will indeed be receptive to the olive branch and, and try to work this out? Well, the, you, you already have people like Mitt Romney uh, who, have, who have accepted olive branches even before the election from the other side and, and have been ostracized by their own party. Uh, there are going to be some olive branches tossed around, but also I think there are going to be some switches out there and folks are going to try to strike some blows uh, with those. Considering what happened to uh, to our president during the last four years, I think there are, there are people out there who feel that turnabout is fair play. Uh, it's not helpful, uh, but those people will be out there. In fact, they're already making noise on social media. Okay. Um, and think of the last four years, the last now, I guess, nine, 10 months in particular, uh -huh. Um, the pandemic and, and everything, do you think there will be uh, mass uh, opposition to the effort to put in place a task force? I understand President Biden uh, will announce the formation of a, a coronavirus task force. Do you think that's going to be opposed by anyone? No, I don't think anybody will oppose that because uh, President Trump has his coronavirus task force. Um, and it's appropriate for President-elect Biden to have his task force. Uh, you know, the, the solution to all of the problems we have, uh, these solutions do not lie exclusively on the desk of the president. Uh, there's got to be a lot of input from experts, people who know the landscape and know what they're talking about. And then it's the president's responsibility and his staff to, to sift through that information and determine what bit of it is in the best interest of the people of this country. Now, his task force may take an entirely different approach from President Trump. President Trump really relied on, uh, on the scientists to, to focus on a vaccine and, and, and testing, and he's relied on the states uh, individually to respond to the, to the virus in their, in their states. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good things to say about that, just as in Georgia, um, you would expect that Governor Kemp would allow cities to devise their own ways, what's in the best interest of them to, uh, to adapt his statewide orders for local implementation. And then, but you saw right off the bat uh, in Augusta, Atlanta, some other cities, the, the mayors were pushing back on masks. They wanted to be able to have their citizens wear masks, even if the governor didn't want it. So, so in, in some ways it's good for the states to focus on what's going on in their boundaries. Uh, on the other hand, though, it's good for the federal government to have a broad federal response so that everybody uh, is focused. Uh, let, let's pivot to the Georgia Senate race, again, facing what could be yeah. historic. I did not check to see when was the last time I don't remember who our last Democratic senator was from Georgia. Do you? Uh, it, might, it might have been Sam Nunn. That's what I was about to say, Sam, Sam Nunn. Nunn that was a long time ago. Uh -huh. um, I, I, I thought about him, uh, which I don't know, Sam Nunn left office in the 80s, maybe? Oh, really have oh to, my gosh. I, this is, you're, really have to you're giving history. me a test here, Janice. <laughs> you're the historian, man. Um, we're looking at an opportunity to have uh, perhaps two Democratic senators. I know a lot has to, to happen yeah. in order to make that happen. 
i.e. the turnout is the key thing. We had record turnout uh, here in Richmond County. I think we had a 64, 65% uh, turnout. And I actually saw some people on Facebook complaining about that. And I said, guys, you got to look historically. I mean, you know, I think District 3 had the highest turnout of any uh, Richmond County district in the uh, June 9th election. And I think their turnout was about 39, 40%. Yeah. So 65% yeah. sounds like a miracle compared to what we've seen a few years back uh, when the District 5 uh, commission seat was up. They had a special election just for that seat. I think the turnout was less than 10%. So yeah, special elections just don't draw people at all. Special election for I, one office. Uh, I just don't know about why. It. And well, and, and I, I think you can go back to to the to the runoff in District Three for the commission seat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the turnout in the in the runoff was pitiful. Yeah, um, I think it dropped it dropped in half from the thirty nine percent that been yeah. in half, uh -huh. roughly maybe eighteen percent. So um, now we're facing what's going to be essentially a special election. It's a runoff. I, I think yeah. those are the only two uh, offices that will be on the ballot. Uh, two Senate seats, uh, people, you know, I know this time everybody went to the polls because they want to vote in the presidential election. You don't have yeah. that motivation anymore. Um, how do you think that's going to unfold? Well, I, I think if you try to, to, to grab some straws from the presidential election and, and apply them to our Senate runoff, uh, you're, you're running a fool's errand because so much of the vote in the presidential election was not for Joe Biden and the Democratic agenda. It was anti-Trump. Uh, and that's what drove a, a lot of that, that turnout. You're not going to have that. Trump is not on the ballot on January 5th. In fact, he'll be uh, packing his belongings at the White House if the vote totals hold up now uh, while this race is going on here in Georgia. You know, it's, it, there's an interesting dynamic with uh, Kelly Leffer being a, an appointed senator who's running for the remainder of the expired term. She's got to run again. I think it's in 2022. So she's got a, got a lot to look right. forward to if she gets right. elected. But, uh, you know, it's not unheard of in Georgia for um, an appointed senator to lose the seat in an election. Uh, that happened with uh, when Sam Nunn was elected, I believe it was. Was it David Gambrell who was appointed by the governor to sit in the seat? And then uh, he, he, he lost the election. So it's, it's, uh, there's some interesting dynamics, but uh, going back to a runoff, I went through two runoffs uh, when I was running for mayor. Uh, both times I ran, I had runoffs. And you're absolutely right. The key is turnout. Uh, debates during runoffs don't do a thing. Everybody knows as much as they'll ever need to know about the candidates. It's getting your base back out and assembling the resources uh, to do that. And it's very easy for uh, folks to say, well, my guy got the most votes the first time around or my gal got the first votes first time around. So I don't need to go to the runoff and vote the, the, this their shoe in. Uh, typically, the person who comes out, uh, uh, well, I don't think there's anything typical about runoffs. People like to say, well, the person who came out ahead and the first time around is going to lose the runoff or he's going to win the runoff. That's what history shows. But uh, each runoff is unique. This runoff is going to draw a lot of energy to Georgia like we've never seen before. More energy than the Masters Golf Tournament or having, uh, <laughs> or having the Super Bowl in Atlanta. The, whole, the eyes of the whole 
the country and the world are going to be on Georgia because the fate of the Senate is going to be in the balance as to how these two races come out. I think that if, if I were uh, running in the runoff, um, I think I would focus quite a bit on the young vote, uh, particularly for the Democrats. They were able to turn them out for Joe Biden, the, the, the young vote, the people who typically don't vote, voted this time. Um, and I would, uh, and I would also press on the other side. I press the advantage that Trump had with minorities. He 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 drew more minority votes than any Republican candidate ever has in an election. So there's some opportunity to build there. There's some opportunity with young people for the Democrats to build. Uh, but you don't want to do that at the expense of your base. You've got to focus on your base. You've got to get your base out, but you've also got to build on your base because your base didn't get you to 50% the first time around. Right, right. There's one other thing I think I've noticed as a trend, because I've, you know, like to just sort of mm -hmm. study what happened in the background. Essentially, we've got the two Democratic candidates, neither of whom I believe has ever held public office. I know Reverend Warnock has not. Right. I don't think Mr. Ossoff has either. No, he ran for Congress. He uh, ran for Congress before. He's lost, run for yeah. office, but he's never held yeah. one. Right. Leffler never held office before her appointment, right? That's right. Uh -huh. And right. did Purdue ever hold anything? I don't think ever elected office. He might have had some appointments before then. Uh, so it, it, that is very interesting to me that we basically have <clears throat> four novices seeking one of the highest offices in the country. <laughs> Right, the, the, the exclusive club of 100. And, uh, it, you know, we've, it, you can make the argument, it's, it's wonderful to have somebody with political experience and they move up the ladder from a county office to a state office and then run into a federal office. But there's a lot to be said too about business people and that's who these people are. And you, you know, Reverend Warnock is a, is a reverend, but he also runs a church, which in many ways is a business. So you've got these people with business experience running for the Senate. And, and do we need that as opposed to political experience? To me, business experience trumps political experience when, when you get to this level, because you're making policy. And yeah. if, you don't, if you don't know firsthand how this policy affects you, uh, then how in the world are you going to make good policy? Um, that, that, one of the advantages I had when I was... Uh, when I served in the Bush administration in housing and urban development was that I had the experience of a mayor. And so I knew how these uh, regulations we were writing at HUD, uh, how the programs were working or not working for mayors. And, and a lot of the experience I had uh, as a mayor came in, um, uh, came into good use when we were dealing with Hurricane Katrina and I was working with the mayors and the commission chairman down on the Gulf Coast to uh, to rebuild their cities and tap into federal benefits. So, so there's a lot to be said to, to having business people in, in this uh, in this race. It's refreshing, and these are not household names. I don't think David Perdue is a household name, and certainly Kelly isn't. Now their name recognition went up because they've just been through uh, through uh, one one round of election, but uh, they're not household names. And and Warnock and Ossoff are from Atlanta. People in Augusta don't know who they are. Uh, and that may be true elsewhere in the state. So uh, I, I just don't know how much interest in Georgia there's going to be in that runoff, uh, Janice. Uh, there's probably more interest outside of Georgia than there is in Georgia. And I, I think that's, that's very much the mm -hmm. case.
Well, we have talked for quite a while today. <laughs> and I have enjoyed our conversation. I enjoy getting diverse uh, perspectives and sharing those with our listeners. Uh, as you close, is there anything you want to share with us? Uh, yes, my website, bobyoungbooks.com. <laughs> that's, right that's, where, that's where you could uh, uh, see the books I've published and learn more about those and some of the uh, events and activities that, uh, that I've involved in. And we also have a calendar on there where I'm going to be appearing. Not much lately because of covid Right. But uh, when we get cranked back up again, we'll have a current calendar. It's bobyoungbooks.com. And, uh, and I just, you know, following the election, I would just, every, I would just ask everyone to please take a breath. Uh, we've got a system in place to sort things out. We ought to let the system work. And then we can decide whether we're happy or sad with the results. And then we can reflect on how we personally want to adapt to the new America. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I've enjoyed having you with me and wish you the best of luck in selling those books. <laughs> Thanks, Janice. <laughs> you, you too. You, there's a book in you, I know. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.